Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Can I say how nice it is to have Merle and Linda with us this morning, back after long circumstances have kept them away. Lovely to have you here. What do you do about a popular public figure who stands in the way of your own ambitions? What do you do about a popular public figure who you want to stop being popular? That is the question faced by opposition parties across the democratic world. It seems to be what modern politics is all about. How to demolish someone's popularity when it's a barrier to your own ambitions. And one of the time-tested strategies in this is what's recently come to be known as wedge politics. Wedge politics is all about putting your opponent in a lose-lose situation. You find some divisive or controversial issue and you force the popular person to answer a question about it so that whatever answer they give, they'll offend some of their supporters. Maybe you ask them about house prices so they'll lose support either from young people or from retirees. Or you ask them to take a stand on some social issue where they can't avoid offending either the progressives or the conservatives. Now, today's politicians, when they find this tactic being used against them, they have one defensive strategy in particular. You know what it is? To say as little as possible. Dodge the question. Return to the talking points. If they can avoid saying anything at all about this controversial topic, they can live to fight another day. Now, in Mark chapter 12, we see this strategy of wedge politics being used against Jesus. Jesus has been enjoying amazing popularity amongst the crowds in Jerusalem. But his words and his actions are a major threat to the people who run the place. In Jerusalem, the chief priests were the ones who held positional power as the people who ran the temple. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law held soft power as prominent, educated and upstanding members of society. And Jesus has been throwing his weight around in a way that is a threat to all of them. He'd ridden into Jerusalem like a king. He'd marched into the temple like he owned the place. He'd caused an uproar. He'd declared God's judgment against the place. And so last week we heard them demand to know what authority he had to do these things. And in response, he told them the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, there's nothing like a common enemy to bring people together. I don't know if you noticed that for a while during the height of the COVID pandemic, politics in Australia came to a standstill. There was a common enemy to be fought against. And so the opposition parties just started waving things through. They'd say, oh, yeah, sure, good idea. Go right ahead. It was totally weird. Back in first century Palestine, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they disagreed with each other about all sorts of things. Lots of differences there. But in this chapter, we see them temporarily putting those differences aside. They form a coalition to oppose Jesus and his message, a coalition to defend the status quo. As one of my college lecturers remarked, isn't it wonderful how Jesus brings people together? (laughs) So what we see in Mark 12 today is these different groups taking turns to play wedge politics against Jesus. Is anyone here into boxing? Anyone follow boxing? 
No, not a single one. Me neither. Me neither. But this chapter reminds me somehow of a boxing tournament where various hopefuls line up to take on the undefeated heavyweight. That's what it reminds me of. And as these different opponents line up to take him on, Jesus holds his own. But he doesn't act like a modern politician and just dodge the question. As he avoids getting trapped, Jesus actually manages to land some serious points of his own. And so today, as we quickly run through the different rounds of this tournament, I want us to notice these key points that Jesus manages to make and see what they all add up to. Now, there are four rounds in this tournament. Let's have a look. Round one, some Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus with a political question. Verse 14, they ask, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, the people of Jerusalem were under occupation by the Roman Empire and the emperor demanded a tax from them. And some segments of Judean society said, we are the people of the living God, the true God. God gave us this land as our inheritance. He is mighty to save. If you really trust the Lord, you won't go paying off the Romans. But other segments of society would say, are you crazy? Have you seen the size of the Roman army? If you've got any brains, you'll do everything they say. The population was divided. And so if Jesus says a simple yes or no, he'll be in hot water. But Jesus avoids the wedge. He picks up a coin and he says, whose picture is this on this coin? This coin clearly belongs to the emperor. It's got his image stamped on it. So go ahead, give it back to him. But Jesus goes on. Verse 17 says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Caesar gets his money, which belongs to him. God gets what belongs to him. And what's that? I guess it's a few songs on a Sunday, a few thoughts and prayers, a bit of moral behavior, that kind of thing, right? Actually, this is one of those time bomb sentences. Once you thought about it for a while, it explodes on you. The coin is Caesar's because it bears his image. And what is it that bears the image of God? Every human person. And so what should we give to God? What belongs to God? Your whole self belongs to God. Everything about you. You are made in the image of God. You are his representative. You have his mark of ownership stamped on you. And so it's not give money to Caesar and give other stuff to God. It's give everything to God. Your money included. Jesus doesn't just evade the wedge. He makes his own point. Your whole self belongs to God. The wedge has failed. Verse 17 says they were amazed at him. All right, round two. The Sadducees come and have a go. In verse 18, Mark explains that these guys say there is no resurrection. Now, most Jewish people in Jesus' time had come to believe that a day was coming at the end of history when God would raise all people from the dead and hold them to account, punish the wicked 
and reward the righteous. That's what most people believed. But the details of this had emerged only quite late in the Old Testament scriptures. And the Sadducees were a very conservative bunch who only really trusted the oldest parts of the Old Testament, uh, the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so in their opinion, once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. They think resurrection is a stupid idea, so they bring to Jesus this ridiculous scenario about a woman who has seven husbands die on her. It's just a made-up story. And they say to Jesus, in this resurrection, whose wife will she be, huh? Like the previous group, these Sadducees are trying to wedge Jesus. They think that Jesus will be forced to either deny the resurrection or randomly choose one of the seven husbands or say that when God's kingdom comes, this woman's going to have seven husbands all at once and endorse polyandry. All of these answers would land Jesus in hot water. But Jesus argues back forcefully and effectively. Verse 24, he says, You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And he avoids their accusation by actually making an argument for the resurrection based on the books of Moses, which the Sadducees accepted. He quotes from Exodus and he says, If you've read these scriptures properly, you would agree that resurrection is a thing. But while he's doing that, he gets to make a bigger point. Jesus points out that the Sadducees assume that all the structures of this world, such as marriage, are the same in the age to come. But he points out that the truth is that God's coming kingdom is a radically new order. God's radically new kingdom is coming. It's not just a reboot of this age. On Resurrection Day, we won't just wake up from our graves with all of the constraints and problems of today's world. The Resurrection Age will be a whole new order of life. The Sadducees don't understand God's power to make all things new. They don't seem to understand that death itself will be destroyed And so all the structures of human reproduction from this age will no longer be needed. Last year in our series on sex and gender, we thought more about what this means for our understanding of marriage. We saw how marriage is, in fact, a signpost to a greater reality. And when Jesus returns, that greater reality will be here. If you like, you can go back and listen to that talk online from last year. But the big point that Jesus lands here is that God's coming kingdom is a radically new reality. The Sadducees retreat. Let's move on to round three, shall we? Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him a question. Now, Mark doesn't tell us anything actually about this guy's intentions or attitude, uh, From what we have here, he could just be curious and interested. But Matthew's gospel, when it tells this story, indicates that this guy was actually another one of the Pharisees who wants to put Jesus to the test. He can see that Jesus knows his stuff. It's like a pro boxer is walking past an amateur fight and sort of looks and goes, ah, that guy's pretty good. I'd like to take him on myself. And so this teacher of the law asks Jesus a weighty question. 
What's the greatest commandment of the law? That's a really big question. He's talking about the Jewish law from the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There are hundreds and hundreds of commands from God about how God's people should live. And rabbis had been debating for centuries about which of those laws was the most important. Opinions abounded. Getting Jesus to pin himself down on this question would surely lose him a few supporters. I think it's really noteworthy that Jesus, when asked for the one greatest commandment, names two commandments in reply. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the most important one. And then he goes on to quote from Leviticus 19. The second is this, Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus says there is no commandment greater than these. That's pretty gutsy. A politician, when asked a controversial question, would have found a way to give no answer at all. But Jesus gives two answers when only one was asked for. Jesus is showing here that loving your neighbour goes with loving God. These two go together. Now, as you and I work out how to please God in the complexities of life, these two great commandments that Jesus names, they are a precious anchor for us. But let's notice that love for neighbour is not a substitute for loving God. Ever heard someone talk about loving God by loving your neighbour? That's making it a substitute. As you'd know, there's plenty of atheists who are happy to sign up for the ethical code of loving your neighbour as yourself. It's quite an attractive idea. But Jesus calls his people to love our neighbour within the realm of loving God. If God is left out of the picture, it's very easy for either you or your neighbour to take on God's role. Love for neighbour can turn into worship of neighbour. Alternatively, love for neighbour can be done with the goal that your neighbour will worship you. Either way, disaster will ensue. Loving neighbour is not a substitute for loving God. But Jesus is also pointing out that you can't love God without loving your neighbour. It's a package deal. You can offer all the animal sacrifices you like, you can sing all the worship songs you like, you can listen to all the sermons you like, but if it doesn't produce a concern for the people around you, a heart of service, a willingness to be generous to the needs of others, Jesus says your love for God is tragically incomplete. That's the point that Jesus lands in this third round of the tournament, that loving your neighbour goes with loving God. They belong together. And the teacher of the law can't argue with this. He's actually very impressed and he agrees. The wedge has failed because Jesus has come up with an answer that is so good that nobody can argue with it. Verse 34 says that from then on, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. But although the supply of challenges has dried up, Jesus is not finished. He's still in the ring. Verse 35, 
he shows that not only can he answer curly questions, he can ask some curly questions of his own. Round four is a bonus round where Jesus moves from defense to offense. Verse 35, he asks the crowd, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? King David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared in Psalm 110, the Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, that's someone else, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, everyone regarded Psalm 110 as talking about the Messiah. And so Jesus is asking, David calls the Messiah Lord. How then can the Messiah be David's son? The crowd listened with delight. And no doubt they were also a bit stumped. The general expectation was that the Messiah would be a king who was just as good as the great King David had been. But Jesus shows that David expected a ruler who would be greater than him. The big point of this bonus round is that the Messiah is greater than you realise. He's not just David's son, he is King David's Lord. He doesn't fit within the existing concepts of power and greatness. He exceeds them, he breaks the categories open. The crowd listened with delight but maybe without realising that David's Lord was the one who was speaking to them at that very moment. So we've had three rounds plus the bonus round. Jesus has been victorious. The people who are hoping to publicly trap him have failed and retreated. What happens after the tournament's over? Does Jesus saunter back to the dressing room, get a bunch of pats on the back and casually say, yeah, don't think those Pharisees will be bothering us anymore. No, he doesn't. Having defeated the Jerusalem bigwigs in this battle for the hearts and minds of the people, in this post-match analysis, Jesus says, verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. I think he's talking about the whole Jerusalem establishment here. He successfully outmaneuvered them, but he gives the crowd a solemn warning about them. Watch out. And it's not because they've got the smooth arguments and the distorted biblical teaching. Jesus says, watch out, because all of us are in danger of following their example. Jesus says, verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. What's his key diagnosis? about the Jerusalem authorities who've been trying to tear him down? What's been driving his opponents? They've been defending their kingdom of self. They are against Jesus because the things that Jesus is saying and doing are going to get in the way of them walking around in their flowing robes, being greeted with respect. Jesus is implying that they don't deserve the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. The points that Jesus has been able to make through the different rounds of verbal sparring 
are aimed squarely at them and at the kingdom of self that they have built. There are the big points that Jesus lands. Those Jerusalem bigwigs, whether they did or didn't pay the tax to Caesar, none of them was giving to God what was God's. They weren't giving God the honest worship and the heartfelt obedience he deserved. They didn't act like their whole self belonged to God. Instead of bringing glory to God, they were using God and his place and his law to bring glory to themselves. Those Jerusalem bigwigs, whether they believed in the resurrection or didn't believe in the resurrection, none of them lived in a way that recognised that God was bringing in a kingdom of radical newness. Because for them, their success and comfort in this world was what it was all about. Those Jerusalem power figures failed to love their neighbour. And in so doing, they failed to love God. Instead of loving their neighbour, they exploited their neighbours. Jesus says they devour widows' houses. And at the end of today's chapter, Jesus points out a poor widow who is putting into the temple collection box all she had to live on. The temple authorities should have been caring for her, not taking her money. But trampling down the poor was another way they built up their kingdom of self. The Jerusalem establishment were all acting on the assumption that the Messiah, when he came, would play their game by their rules. And Jesus says to us, watch out. Those men will be punished most severely. Now, it's really easy for you and me to hear about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and what they get up to and to to scoff We look down on them. We assume that they are like a different species to us. We might even pray, I thank you, God, that I am not like those Pharisees. (laughs) But the truth is that you and I are more than capable of following their example in building a kingdom of self. You and I are more than capable of acting like myself belongs to myself. My thoughts, my time, my desires, my money, they belong to me. And I'll choose what to do with them. Do you ever catch yourself thinking that? We so easily forget that we belong to God. We bear his image. And so we overlook the joy and the honour of representing him in the world. You and I are more than capable of acting like this life is all that matters. We can work so hard to seize the day, extract all the excitement, make sure we don't miss out on any opportunities. Do you find yourself worrying that you won't tick off your bucket list in time? We can easily live like Sadducees who deny the resurrection, who forget that Jesus has prepared for us a life of abundance in a renewed creation in the presence of God himself to enjoy for eternity. I often find it easy to lose that perspective. You and I are more than capable of failing to love our neighbour by being caught up in systems which oppress the poor. Let me ask you, when questions get raised about the pay rate of your Amazon delivery driver or the wage of the person who sewed your $5 T-shirt, do you pay attention to those questions? I find it really easy to think, worrying about that 
it'll probably lead to inconvenience and extra cost. So I'm just going to let that thought float out of my mind. Easy to do. We can forget that as people who are loved so deeply by God, we need to reflect that love not only back to him, but also to our neighbour. We are more than capable of trying to turn Jesus into a Messiah who fits in with our plans, who affirms our position, who feeds our pride. When in fact, he is a Messiah who is so much more wonderful than that. It's not that we're all Pharisees through and through. That's not what Jesus said to the crowd. That's not what I'm saying to you. But let's recognise that none of us is immune to this affection. We all need to take precautions. That's why Jesus says, watch out. When we hear his condemnation of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we should realise that could easily be me. Jesus is against every kingdom of self. Right at the end of our reading today, at the start of chapter 13, Jesus pointed to the Jerusalem temple, which had become an instrument of such terrible corruption and pride. And he declared that that magnificent and hallowed structure would soon be smashed to pieces. And it was. In AD 70, the Romans responded to a Jewish uprising by knocking the whole place to the ground, never to be rebuilt. And just as God just demolished the Jerusalem establishment with its self-serving leadership, in the end, God is going to destroy every self-serving power structure. Whether it's the empire of the scribes and Pharisees, or the empire of Vladimir Putin, or heaven forbid, the empire of Tom Barrett. Every kingdom of self will be destroyed in the end. And in its place, God's kingdom will stand instead. God's kingdom is the opposite of the kingdom of self. In God's kingdom, the king is a humble servant. He doesn't walk around in flowing robes. He gives up his life on a cross as a ransom for many. This king doesn't devour widows' houses to fill his coffers. No, he became poor so that through his poverty you can become rich. This king endured the horror of separation from God so that you can know the joy of God's presence. If you're here today as a curious visitor, that is what Jesus offers you. If you're here today as a Christian believer, that's the precious citizenship which is yours. And so let's watch out. Let's beware of being sucked into building a kingdom of self. Instead, let's renew our allegiance to the king who gave himself. Amen.